I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. In a world where we're so often encouraged to achieve and excel, what magic unfolds when we lean into our perfectly imperfect selves? What happens when we blend laughter and play with the profound work of healing? My guest today is Corinne Bell, speaker, somatic educator, clown in training, and somatic abolitionist to transform how we relate to trauma and oppression. With a foundation in community liberation, indigenous and eco-psychology, she takes a decolonial approach to life, meeting each moment with curiosity, wonder, and a trust in laughter for healing. Today, we explore the importance of embracing healthy shame as a tool for reflection, the impact of toxic shame, and the power of embracing our quirky sides for profound personal and collective shifts. Can the serious be seriously fun? Let's find out. (laughs) (laughs) Corinne Bell, welcome to the Gently Used Human, my love. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I've been (laughs) desiring for you to be on my little podcast since its incarnation. And I'm so excited to embrace the weird with you today. That sounds good. I feel like you are an embodied... Entity, (laughs) an embodied weirdo. (laughs) Let's be real. You are an embodied weirdo and you allow that to come out in other people. That's a really generous thing to say, actually. Um, I wish I could say that I felt that I was totally at ease with being my weird self in front of people. And I think for sure, you know, with my family, with my friends. Yeah it's a lot easier to let the weird out, especially with people who are just as weird or at least can catch the bug. Yeah. Right? It can be a lot of fun. But, you know, I'm still working on what it means to really embrace that in a very public way. Mm. And I feel like this could go in a lot of different directions. But I would like to first start by acknowledging how weird this is in a way. (laughs) To be having this like casual kitchen table conversation with lights and cameras and microphones, right? It already adds a dimension that is kind of rather strange and artificial. Yeah. And yeah, I know you and I were talking a little bit. Way to reveal the fourth wall. I know, but I think think that's the thing though. (laughs) I'm so so... interested in revealing it because I think it's a very, I don't know, I can't obviously speak for everyone who has this experience, and I'm sure the more you do it, the more you get used to it being around. And at the same time, every single time I press record in a conversation with someone, something changes. Yeah. And like, (laughs) I'm not trying to make it change. I don't want it necessarily to change. But there's another presence in the room. Yeah. And so I just love the opportunity just to name it. It's there. I mean, I think if we don't name something then it's just, I mean, it's truly the weight of the elephant in the room and that just lingers. Yeah, totally. It absolutely does. And you're trying to act. Oh. <laughs> another, <laughs> here, this is me. You're trying uh, to like act a certain way. Yeah. Even though there's video cameras yeah. and, you know, and we're further apart than, I mean, I this know. is the furthest apart we've ever been. This is like three feet. I mean, not, I mean, of course, no, Zoom, no. Zoom allows greater distances than this. <laughs> but when but we're hanging out in person, it's like... That's true. It's a bigger distance than actually either... I feel that it's, it's comfortable. It's true. We, like, if you're sitting at someone's kitchen table, yeah. you're probably a lot closer. Or, yeah. or there's, I don't know, there's just other things that you're maybe doing while you're, like, conversing at the table. 
it's interesting, yeah? And it's not good or bad, but it adds a different element to the experience. And, you know, and we were also talking a bit about this. Well, I'm curious to talk about how we show up. Yeah. Right? In a space. Like, so let's say there's this fourth wall. What yeah. did you call it a fourth wall? Yeah, it's like, that's like a... That's, is that a thing? Yeah, term? it's like a Chekhov thing. Or, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah or Stanislavski. One of those acting dudes from back in the day. Oh. Yeah, where they were all about like taking down the fourth wall so the audience it's like oh. a wink wink like the actors know the audience is there etc oh that's interesting so it's not just like we're observing it's like we're a part of yeah that makes a lot of sense to me yeah so yeah so it's, it's not like just a spectacle then right? yeah where it's only a one-sided experience of being witnessed yeah because i mean like on a podcast like you're on the outside often listening in to a conversation as opposed to if we turn to it and we go, hey, listeners. Yeah, it's like winking at the <laughs> at the camera during like, a movie or something. Yeah, winking at the camera during the movie. It's like, hey, listeners, how are you feeling right now? You're in on this too. You're in on this too. Yeah. You're, you, maybe you want to embrace your weird. Oh, that's very time travel-y, trippy. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> to imagine people... Listening in the, the future. Yeah, in, a, yeah. in the future yeah. now, but yet they're still interacting with us in yeah. some way. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Nonlinear time. <laughs> just, <laughs> we did not eat mushrooms before this episode. I just want to be well, clear. Oh, wait, I did. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I am joking. Wink. Wink. <laughs> I love how oh, you're looking at the camera and winking. I was like, who are you winking at? I'm over here. Fourth wall. Fourth wall. <laughs> Got to bring it in. What an interesting way to start a podcast, especially <laughs> one that is, I mean, you know, focused, maybe we're going to talk about a lot of different things I know, but yeah. we talk, you and I know, and talk a lot about somatics and yeah. that's kind of the world that we're coming in from. But I feel like this all kind of leans towards that embrace of our full humanity and like authenticity. And yeah. this is real. This is this like is, as real as it gets, yeah. like identifying the fourth wall and yeah. acknowledging its influence and yeah. And all of the things that kind of constitute the moment and showing up in the moment as authentically as we can be. And, you know, something that I've been thinking quite a lot about, especially as I am, you know, reaching an age and, and in a, coming into an experience of perimenopause, and I can no longer reliably say like what'll be my like coherent days and what'll be my kind of less coherent days. I think with the fluctuating hormones and just, you know, a lot of the transitional things that happen around this time, I find myself having a lot of days where I just can't string words together. I've had more migraines in the last couple of years. And of course, as someone who I know knows about the migraine experience, when you're in that experience, I mean, I mean, part of me thinks like, well, those are just days where, you know, I should just be in bed and I shouldn't be recording a podcast. And at the same time, there's something so beautiful to me about an ability to show up regardless of how you're showing up, you know, in my lack of words, in my lack of coherence, in my lack of clarity, in my confusion. There's a real risk in that gesture that I find so intriguing right now because I'm so in it all of the time. You know, there are days where I just don't feel like I have it, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it can be scary then to enter into a space and realize you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're saying. 
you're like, honestly, today, I don't even know if I know who I am. <laughs> and yet here I am. Yeah. You know, and like, how do we meet each other in that experience? Yeah. Has that showed up recently where it's <sighs> like, yeah, so the head nod in the... Oh, totally. Yeah. I would say it shows up more so than not lately because I think just, yeah, like I said, there are just some, I think, life hormonal changes, whatever you want to, you know, kind of hang it on, things that shift and, you know, just happen. And I think it's important to begin to probe this idea that we're supposed to be consistently the same way all the time. And I know that many people in many spaces are probing that. And there, you know, there is a kind of a decoloniality and thinking like that there's some ideal personhood that we should be showing up as all the time that we're failing over and over again to show up as, right? And I hope in that failure, we're actually able to reframe what we're doing and, and consider the fact that we have this undue pressure to kind of almost perform a normalcy, whatever yeah. the how that means yeah. you know what I mean yeah and so to embrace it is really an invitation to everyone else yeah. like be who you are you mm. know be confused have no clue <laughs> have no effing clue what you're doing right now yeah what direction you're gonna go in what tomorrow's gonna bring or not bring I don't know that sounds terrifying and thank you for saying that. It, it really does. Yeah. Like, it makes me nervous. And I'm like, whoa, that doesn't hit my perfectionist button. Perfectionist button. And I know we're getting into perfectionism today as we enter yeah. into the world of shame. But like, yeah. shit, like, that's terrifying. Like, and it also reminds me of physiology. Hmm. <laughs> no, just that, you know, like the idea of homeostasis. Like there's a pop conception of homeostasis that it's like there's a succinct point mm. in your entire physiology that it's like if you're at this point, then everything aligns. There's the optimal energy, the optimal expenditure of hormones. There's the optimal attention. There's the optimal everything yeah. for adapting and functioning. And that's actually not true. It's actually this very wide range totally. that is optimal. And we fluctuate constantly yes. within it. And when we go outside of that range or that window is where we come into some challenges. But it's actually, you know, to me, our physiology in that way suggests there is no perfect point. There's a range of optimal yeah. processing or being. I love that. I love that. And thank you for bringing it in. And the visual that came to me was just one of the ocean. Mm. It's like, I think when I started doing more in the world of somatics and, of course, experiencing my own healing through somatics, that was the kind of metaphor that I would anchor in. Like, how do we make ourselves as wide as the ocean so that we can have the full range of experience? Because for me, when we talk about embracing humanity, that's what it looks like, the full range, which means you know, big joy, big grief, right? And they're in the same breath even. And that's a really exquisite thing. And I feel like the ocean as a metaphor for that is a, a really good one because it is to become as wide of as, as an ocean, you can really experience all the things, yeah. right? You experience all the things. Yeah, there's something softer about like this sense of expanse that like, you know, these moments where I, because I, I know exactly what you mean, like having a, had a history of TIAs and migraines, like there are days where I can't string words together in a coherent way. Or for most of my adult life, I've had to put string together words on a screen in my head 
before I can say them out loud to organize. Yeah. And there are days where I can't put that effort in. Right. And it's very, like, really painful. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine that's very tender, right? It's tender not to have, you know, the perfect words or the perfect day or the consistency of like, oh, yesterday was so awesome. I know. Yesterday I was fucking rocking it. If only you had caught me yesterday. I was like, oh, you know, uh, I was on it. Why weren't you just following me around with the camera yesterday? No joke, though. Yeah. I will have day. I will have like a period of time that's really good. Yeah, you know, good. See, there yeah. we go. That's an, evaluation, an evaluation, right? Yeah. It's a, and I, I would like to question that. But I'll have a period of time where things are fluid and I feel coherent and ideas are flowing. And I'll think to myself, I need to capture this. Like, I need to do all the things in this period of time because it will change. And when it changes, I'll no longer have access to that. And that's something I'm starting to also work with and not do. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, you know, as, as much as I might feel inclined to really harness the energy of that time, I'm also sitting with what it would mean to not do that. And just because I think it's still in some way an avoidance of that discomfort, you know, the terror that you named. And I really appreciate you naming that because I feel like it's really, really easy for us to say, I'll love you for who you are, show up as you are, be just as you are, authentic, authentic, authentic. And to actually, it's easy when you're feeling good, maybe to show up and just be like, here I am being my authentic, funny, fluid self, you know, and then there are those days where you have a migraine and you can't string words together. And maybe you're even facilitating or you're, you know, you have to have a conversation with someone and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I know the answer to the question you're asking me and I can't put words together to, to respond. Now, how do we show up in that moment? And what would it even look like to just name it? Yeah. Just to be like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm feeling totally confused. My head is fuzzy. My brain is foggy and I just don't have it. What do we do? Now, can we pause on that? Like, can we just be with each other in that experience? I think I long for the people in my life with whom I can have that experience. And it's not just okay, it's embraced. It's like, yes, this is what it means to show up just as we are and have it be okay. Yeah. So in some ways I hear you saying like, if we maybe don't pedestal the best days of our life so much, then maybe we won't demean the days that aren't that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there is a... Or criticize ourselves in relation to those days. Like, we didn't sleep well, and so we're not at our, quote-unquote, optimal functioning or flow state. Exactly. I mean, we could even just question the idea of an optimal state. Yeah. You know what I mean? Optimal to who? And to what? For what end? You yeah. know, like who is it serving yeah. this optimal state? I don't know. It really diminishes our ability to embrace like the cycles and seasons mm. of our lives and to see the value in the cycles. So well said. You know? Yeah. And it, again, representative of perhaps a the invisible cultural perfectionism that's embedded in our society yeah. that we even are using this idea of optimal. I mean, yeah. we know that there's... Again, like from a physiological perspective, and and this is an interesting challenge to everything that we're saying, is like there's an ideal amount of energy conservation and usage that allows us to be most efficient in our adaptation. So if like 
you throw a baseball at me and I throw a car at you. Please don't. <laughs> like, or, or sorry, I like try to pick up a car to hit it like I'd a bat. I'd be very impressed with your... I would be impressed With too. your strength. But it, the exaggeration in that analogy is like, it doesn't actually make sense. Why not just get out of the way or pick up a glove or pick up a bat and respond to it? Mm. It's like this disproportionate response that has a tax... Like, yeah. it's a taxation on our energy. Yeah. What I hear in that is some reference to maybe the very powerful mobilized energy in some of our responses that is likely rooted in other experiences than what's actually happening in the moment. Yeah, that's true. Often, not all the time. I mean, yeah. I want to say there are definitely times when a, res <laughs> a very strong response is appropriate for the situation. Yeah. But what I'm hearing in that analogy or that example that you brought in is this maybe an exaggerated response to something that might be fueled by something more than actually the baseball you threw at me, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it triggered something yeah. that I'm not even necessarily conscious of, yeah. right? But that it's <laughs> now I'm throwing the full force of my energy towards it because it maybe I'm experiencing it as a threat. Is that what I understand? Yeah, that's interesting because part of when we say like there's optimal for the current experience, like there's an uh -huh. optimal amount of energy used in response to a baseball. Right, but if I'm triggered... Right which we all get triggered, all of a sudden that optimal amount of energy gets dysregulated. Mm. And I'm bringing in the past and all of a sudden it's called spread activation theory. Okay, right? oh, I've not heard that. And it means okay. like, okay, I see the color green in this plant that's next to me. Yes. And it stimulates all the other moments in my life that I've seen green mm. and the emotional experience attached to those memories. To green. Mm -hmm. And it floods my entire being in this moment. Mm. That's spread activation theory. Okay, I've not heard that before. Yeah, and so in that moment, I'm responding not only to the stimulus that's here, but all of my, the past. Okay. And it's flooding mm. and it makes my response kind of disproportionate or dysregulated, we could say, disproportionate right. often to what's actually happening in the present moment. That makes sense. And I think yeah. maybe just using a different framing, but similar, yeah. like, for example, in Resma Menachem's work, you know, in the work that I did with him around somatic abolitionism, we would often talk about what's showing up in the room, right? When a room becomes really charged around the conversation of race, for example, What's showing up in that space is likely more than just what's actually happening in the moment. But the weight of our personal, our familial, our intergenerational, ancestral legacies, right? All of that can also be showing up. And it, so it sounds similar, but it's bringing in this kind of like ancestral intergenerational dimension as well. The point is it could be pre-verbal to our experience, right? And we don't even know what's happening with it, but here it is, Yeah. right? Now it's here. Yeah. What do we do with it? <laughs> yeah. And there's something, yeah. And as we have these, like, like, this process of bringing in our past or bringing in other things that aren't just this moment is part of the awkwardness of being alive. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's totally. just our human nature. Totally. And it, you know, goes back to me, even what you were saying in the beginning, like, how do we embrace our, you know, our awkward, how do we embrace the, All the weird? weird that because shows up. <laughs> Being human is weird. It is weird. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for just saying it. It's weird. Come on, please. I want to pause. Anyone who's listening to this, it might be 2025. I don't know what year it is for you. <laughs> but can we pause on this just for a, like a beat, yeah. right? And consider that 
how weird it is. We are hurtling through space at 90,000 miles per second on a giant, beautiful rock full of diverse life forms. And we are in this vast expanse of limitless space. Can we please think about this for a second? When you look up into the night sky, you're not just looking at individual stars. You're sometimes looking at galaxies or clusters of galaxies. <laughs> and within each one of those clusters are galaxies with hundreds, hundreds of billions of stars. Listen, y'all, this is fucked up. Okay? <laughs> There's no getting around it. It's weird. It's weird. I mean, and it doesn't take plants to even get you there yeah. if you just stop and pause for a second and consider. That's the cosmic perspective to me. Anytime I think about the cosmos, that's where my head goes. And I think it is something that actually does facilitate that embrace of the weird because mm. listen. <laughs> <laughs> listen. When you zoom out that far, you realize anything's possible. Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. And it is like the awe is weird. Like when you like have that experience of awe, which is like that great expanse that like takes you over and you feel something bigger than yourself. Yeah. It's also representative of like the strangeness that is. And I totally and if we like turn that back to the human nature and see that same type of like there are galaxies within galaxies of patterns Inside and survival. Of us. Yeah. 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 And yeah. survival <laughs> mechanisms yes. and like strategies. Yeah. And yes. just layers and layers and layers, let alone of cells, but of actually like ways we have organized upon experiences. Isn't life so beautiful? It's so beautiful Aww. and it's so weird. Can we pause on that for a second? It's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm being serious. It is so I beautiful. know you are. I love it. And you're weird. I am weird. And you I are weird it. too. And I'm, I love that we can be weird nice together. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm weird, weird one, weird two. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate that. Like, I don't know if we get to pause in the urgency culture that we exist in yeah. to go, whoa, being human, like being this gently used human <laughs> that we are is really about embracing the weird complexities, the awkwardness yeah. of what it is to exist. Yeah, totally. And it just reminds me, I think in those moments where I'm really acknowledging that and not just in my head, but like feeling that of the limitless possibilities for being mm. that we actually have access to. And that's an important part, I think, of any social change process, personal communal change processes, to be able to imagine other possibilities. Yeah. And we can't do that if we are so hardened in our kind of automatic ways of being in the world, you know? And of course, there are forces around us that are maybe hoping to keep us you know, I don't know, in line is not really the word, the term I'm looking for, but it's shaping the direction of our lives in many ways, you know, some of these forces. And so to embrace weird for me is really about kind of refusing them sometimes, resisting them, rebelling against them. It's about, you know, if we have this kind of ingrained idea that perfectionism is a thing, even if we don't, I don't value perfectionism personally. Yeah. I don't value it, and yet I'm surprised at where I still see it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I do. Like in clown school. <laughs> Here we are. 
I knew we'd get to clown school eventually, <laughs> aka embracing the weird, aka, AKA. being your full yeah. human self. Totally, yes. Before we get into clown school, yeah. <laughs> which is just the greatest transition ever, <laughs> or the most awkward transition ever, I'm not sure. But I really appreciate what you're saying is like stagnancy emerges from not embracing our weirdness, embracing the awkward. And like there is something about being the original, like the original anarchy is actually about embracing curiosity, weirdness, awkwardness. Yeah. It being yeah. in the mess, the organized mess or the chaos of existence. Totally. I mean, you know this because you have a somatic experiencing background, as do I. And I wanted to say, of course, somatic experiencing, as I understand it, really draws a lot from indigenous cosmologies, right? And in that, I would say, it also challenges a lot of the more kind of colonial ways of thinking. Like there's a lot of irrationality in somatic experiencing for me. Yeah. Like why am I sitting here in a session with an SE practitioner and all of a sudden if I pay attention to my right shoulder, I just get this image of throwing a baseball. I don't play baseball. I don't really like baseball. I don't know if I've ever thrown a baseball. And yet suddenly this image comes to mind. It's like my right arm wants to throw a baseball. Mm -hmm. What kind of sense does that make? Now, like in almost any other context, I would just override that and be like, oh, you know, I might not even have the kind of trained awareness to even pay attention and to value that as information. But there I am. I have this image of throwing a baseball and everything in my right arm is like throw a baseball. So what do I do? I slowly pick up a baseball, imaginary, of course, and I reach my arm back. I don't even know if I'm doing it right. It doesn't matter. I, you know, I pull it back and then I throw it forward and I'm slowing the movement down, of course, right? So I can really integrate each, I can really sense it, what I'm doing, and I can integrate that into the experience of what I'm doing. And after I do that a couple of times, my arm just kind of whew, relaxes. Yeah. Now, in what world does that make sense? <laughs> in what world does that make sense? There's an irrationality, I think, inherent to healing processes that we need to be able to embrace. Otherwise, we're going to barricade every kind of path that our body presents for healing. You know, this idea that when we experience an overwhelming event or, you know, in the aftermath of, the, of that event, some kind of trauma forms, right, in our experience. I know in SE they say a trauma vortex opens, but simultaneous to that, a healing vortex opens. And so that given the under the right conditions, the healing vortex, know, the body knows what to do. When we feel safe enough with someone, we begin to unfurl. But it means following these very irrational threads of information that come in the form of sensation, of image, of, yeah, of gesture, of posture. And you're like, I don't know why my body wants to do that. I don't know where it's going. But if I'm here in the process, if I'm in my head, yeah. I'm going to block it. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we got to embrace the weird. Yeah. I love that linkage between embracing the weird and the following the nonlinear path of healing that allows yeah. you into the nonlinear path of healing. Absolutely. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is uh, one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, 
The Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Because like, we know you can't talk your way out of trauma. You can only feel your way through it. And that is not going to be some clear linear path. Like you might be in the middle of processing something like you just were talking about. And all of a sudden, this image of or this impulse of like, I have to throw this baseball. And if you, like you said, if you think about it, if you try to rationalize it, if you're not embracing the weird, you're blocking the organic healing process that just wants to emerge. Totally. And totally. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome. Let's just acknowledge that. I- <laughs> You're really into pausing and acknowledging. I love that. Well, today I am, yeah. <laughs> today, today. It's all about this moment and today. Honestly, well, it's so funny. It's something yeah. I think about a lot too because, you know, if this is year 2025 and you're listening to this. <laughs> we're going to be so confused. I hope that we're still around. Yeah. And I hope that you're enjoying this conversation. But honestly, I think about, I think this is one reason why I've I've always been a little hesitant with social media because to put something out into the universe You know, the way often that we relate to things like that in our culture, and I'm using that with kind of air quotes for anyone who's not seeing that gesture, because I realize there's a lot of diversity in experience within a particular cultural context. But, you know, there tends to be this way in which we fix people and we fix ideas and, you know, label them and all concepts become so hardened. And so, you know, the way I want to... When I think of like freedom, that freedom involves being this truly ever unfolding being that can surprise not only myself, but you too, you know, which means that, yeah, I might've said a thing yesterday. I might've changed my mind. I know that about Since you. Since then. I know that about you <laughs> so hard. <laughs> We're like, <laughs> having worked together for years and been collaborators and friends and it's like, and and that's not... <laughs> I say I would make the worst politician, by the way, because I flip. Not not that I would flip flop on issues. It's nothing like that. But it's I want to be able to change my mind. Yeah, I think you're steadfast to flexibility. Yeah, I want. (laughs) I need to be. Yes, yes, because it, it matters to me. We are dynamic beings in this very complex, interconnected stew of life. I want to eat that stew so bad. <laughs> I made stew this week, so I've been <laughs> eating stew like for every meal. So I feel like we are an emergent stew. <laughs> we are an emergent stew with that, potatoes with and carrots. Sometimes and celery. there's carrots. Sometimes there's lentils. <laughs> sometimes there's meat. Sometimes it's vegan. You know how yeah. stews are. As right? stews are, and we've got a lot of like good nutrient dense stuff in there. You know. Yeah. And now I have no idea where what I was saying. <laughs> So if we go back to like the importance of embracing the weird, the awkward, and I know that one of the things you've recently done to sort of like embed yourself in that practice is actually go to clowning school. Tell me about it. Yeah, well. clown? 
I know, right? It's so funny too because since yeah. starting clown school, I'm looking all over for like references mm -hmm. to clowning and history and you know mythology and and things like that. And of course, clowning as a I don't know tradition goes back to the earliest known civilizations. There have been clowns, you know, since the kind of I don't know since the dawn of human history, but at least for as far as back as we know, right? Someone was clowning around in the someone caves. was clowning around. <laughs> And they played a really yeah. important role. This is what I'm learning. They played a really vital role. The trickster, especially the clownist trickster, played a really vital role in any, you know, kind of group or community. You know, clowns are so interesting to me because I've been thinking about this so much, how they really dance on this line between order and chaos. Mm. They're like directly on it. They're stomping on it. They're laughing at it. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. They're blurring it. They're doing all the things. And I think that there has always been some longing in me, speaking to the flexibility, to not take myself seriously. I think I'm pretty good at that in general. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little too good at it sometimes. Yeah. No, but really to not take myself so seriously. And I think maybe because the earlier part of my life wasn't so funny. No. You know, there was really nothing funny about it. It was very heavy. And I do think that it did produce in me, at least in the earliest part of my life, a kind of rigidity in my body, in my life, in, in the way I related to myself, in the way I related to other people, in the way I showed up in different spaces. And as you know, right, through living and experiencing such things yourself, that is a very, very painful place to be. I used to refer to it as like a prison of perception because the way that that kind of rigid identity structure can imprison us is... In a way, it's real and it's not real. It's rooted in real experiences that kind of produce the need for it so that we can navigate our worlds with a modicum of safety. And it limits us. It limits possibility. It limits who we can become. And I don't know. I think maybe uh, maybe there is something also just kind of inherent in me, I don't know, that feels more at ease or at least desires that ability to not know and to become something else. Do you know what I mean? Thankfully, I've had enough experiences of that in my life that I've been able to find them truly transformative. And I went to clown school, you know, in part because it terrified me because I think what, what I think I was starting to become interested in was where this experience that was very personal to me kind of met my more public life mm -hmm. in some ways. And I say public meaning... Let's say I facilitate some spaces and, you know, being one of the co-dreamers in the Rooted Global Village, I'm, you know, I'm on screen, I'm meeting people. And one of the things we're interested in doing is nurturing and tending relationship. And what does that take when we're strangers? What does that mean to do that when we don't know each other? How can I do that in a way, like, what does it mean to show up in a room with a hundred people, let's say I'm hosting an event free to the public, you know, we've done these tending the roots before and all these people show up and we don't know each other and I've got a migraine and I can't find my words and I can't string them together. Do I try to pretend that I'm having a different kind of experience so that you will respect me? Do you know what I mean? This is like, and I'm longing for, I think I've said this already, but I think I'm longing for those spaces where it's okay for me to say, I have a migraine right now and I can't string my words together. And I'm scared. I'm scared because I want to connect with you. I want to be in relationship. And I'm scared that if you witness me like this, 
not knowing what I'm going to say next, not being able to think straight, that you're going to reject me. Or you're going to think that I'm not good enough or I don't have anything of value to offer. And that's a really terrifying thing. And so I think, you know, it, for me, it, it became a value to honor that. But in, in order to honor, you know, the kinds of spaces that can accommodate that, I have to really experience it. I have to experience it and experiment with it myself. Can you say what it is? The cultivation of these kinds of spaces. Ah, uh, You know, okay. where we can show up yes. truly as we are. Yeah. And also risk being seen mm. as we are is and it, all that that means. Yeah. Is that what you found in clown school? Absolutely. Holy shit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's not the place I would directly think of like, I'm going to go find the place where I can feel safest to be the strangest, to let everything out. But that's... To risk it, To risk right? it, wow. To really take the risk and look mm. like a fool. Oh, To wow. look ridiculous. Yeah. To look like a fool, to not know what you're doing. I mean, it's hilarious because... I think the teacher of this con school is one of the funniest humans that I've met. And, you know, we'll do these practices together where we have like maybe, I don't know, 30 people in the class and we'll all be separated into groups of five. And then our task is we have 10 minutes to come up with a march, right? And the march is like, it changes all the time, like what the kind of rules of the march are. And I, I say rules again in quotations because it's hilarious. You're these rules are kind of, you're set up to fail. Let's put it These that way. These are like guidelines? Yeah, they're kind okay. of guidelines. So you have to do a march and there's five of you and you have to end with a nursery rhyme and you have to perform the nursery rhyme or something like that, okay. right? So you have 10 minutes together and you're, you know, in the beginning, I'm frantic and I'm like, okay, so what's a nursery rhyme? I can't remember a nursery rhyme. What's a nursery rhyme? The hilarity of it is that, you know, some of the funniest moments or some of the most tender compassion-inducing moments are the moments where someone has no idea they're, they're, or they're the totally out of sync with the rest of the group or, you know, or they say or they do something that is just so over the top and ridiculous and clearly a violation of the rules. Yeah. And those are the best moments yeah. because that's when something is revealed that you didn't see before, right? And that's where like humanity I feel like truly lives in those moments. And I found myself in the very beginning, you know, very much going into performance mode, which really surprised me because I didn't consider myself a performer. Uh -huh. It's kind of one of the questions at the yeah. beginning, like, you know, who are the performers? Who are, you know, and of course, there's always actors in the group. Yeah. But there are like maybe a handful of us that are like, I'm not a performer at all. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And then you find yourself performing. And yeah. you're like, oh, my God. I didn't realize how scary it was for me to actually show up not knowing. Oh, so performing in this context is like the veil. Or exactly. Like the, exactly. Okay. It's the part of me that thinks I need to adhere to some expectation of what this is supposed to look like. We all know that shit. We all know that. Oh, fuck. We all know that. I mean, yeah. I think we can all, even if we're listening in 2025. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key here, <laughs> That's the key folks. here. Know that what it is to some degree, or maybe don't know what, that we're doing it to some degree of yeah. that performing or overperforming. Yeah. That sort of putting on the mask yeah. to adhere to somebody else's desires or needs or protect something in us from truly being seen, even though we want it to be seen. 
This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. It's not so interesting to, you know, one thing about clown school that I found really interesting was that when you begin, you're told you're not allowed any makeup and no clown makeup, no clown yeah. disguises, no nose, no. And at first I was like, oh, that's interesting, but we're doing clowning. Why wouldn't we just have all the clown stuff? Yeah. And not that I wanted it or didn't yeah. want it. It was just an, a curiosity for me. Yeah. And then I realized it would also be very easy to hide behind that mask. Mm. Like you're really taking your time to become the clown, but to become the clown is not to hide. It's mm. quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. What is it then? It's to be so, so revealed in every moment. And to do it, you know, a lot of what we're learning to do as well is when we're doing a march or we're doing some other activity and we're the ones up on, quote unquote, the stage, we're, we're guided into keeping our eye contact with the people who are watch who are observing us who are witnessing us now how comfortable is that <laughs> when you're <laughs> embarrassed yeah. or you feel stupid or whatever your feeling is present and maybe it feels very tender what is that like to then just be witnessed in that it's so risky it's so risky it's so risky do you feel this is such a weird question but in those moments where the veil is down, the vulnerability is happening, you're being witnessed even in the fullness of probably buffoonness mm-hmm. <laughs> in that moment, do you feel more human? That's a very good question. Yes. And yeah. I have seen, maybe not as much with me, but when I'm just witnessing others, for example, I have seen like examples of like what it looks like to be up there and be in that moment and to meet it with kind of levity mm-hmm. and humor yeah, and and uh, embrace the ridiculousness of yeah. it, right? And the job of the clown instructor, by the way, is yeah. to ridicule you, <laughs> which is absolutely fantastic. I cannot tell you. I actually just said to him most recently, I was like, I sometimes feel like you don't ridicule me enough. And I'm like, I got to be careful in saying that because <laughs> I also don't want to necessarily invite it. Yeah. And at the same time, I feel like it gives me permission mm-hmm. 
to laugh at myself in a moment like that or laugh with myself or cry with myself, whatever it is. And it's like you're meeting me in that experience. I don't feel alone. Versus the other experience, which I think even when, and this is maybe touching in on the shame piece. You know, there have been moments where maybe someone is sharing something and it's something gets triggered, something gets touched. And maybe a not, you know, I think for many people, a kind of a trauma response is this learned pattern of like, when I'm feeling this, I have to like look away and I can't even receive the support that you might be giving me right now. You know, like you might look out and there may be a sea of compassionate faces, but the shame of that experience for you is so overwhelming that you can't receive it. And so you look away and that's happened, not in this particular class, but in another context. And when that happens, you know, it's so interesting. It's like the person retreats, right? They're kind of retreating and they're no longer available for that kind of support. And I think that's when, it's not that it's not human, it's a very human experience, right? But shame is a human experience. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's where I think there's an edge for people, right? Mm -hmm. There's definitely an edge that some folks reach. And when it tips into shame, at least the toxic version of shame, it can be hard to kind of pull them out. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's break that down because there's a let's lot of juicy break material. It down. Break it down. Break it down. Break it down. Bring it on down. Bring it on down. It's sexy time. Sexy time. <laughs> talking about shame. Okay, that this got weird. This is 2025. 2025. <laughs> We're talking about shame. I think one of the interesting things you just said is like shame is a human experience. And I think that we can slow that down because there's something so substantial in knowing that. Because often we might think of like, oh, we are shamed or we experience shame. But like to slow down and recognize, and I've heard you say this before, is that we are evolutionarily designed. We are wired to experience shame, which means it has some type of value or purpose in our human experience. Totally. Break that down for me. Well, <laughs> listen, and I want to just say that my understanding of this model of shame, which is talking about a toxic and healthy versions of shame, comes from Kathy Kane and Stephen Terrell, I believe that's his name. It comes from their work, and they have a book called, I think, I think it's called Nurturing Resilience. I'm not sure if I'm getting the title right, but that's where I first learned of this. And I actually did a workshop with Kathy Kane many years ago, and that's where I learned this more intimately. But It essentially says that shame is a physiological experience. Every single human who has ever experienced shame knows what it feels like, right? There's an immobilization in that experience. It's a kind of withdrawal and shutting, like kind of contraction. That's like a freeze? It's like an immobilization. I mean, I feel like it is part of an immobilization response. And it has... And like you said, it has an important function if you imagine that we're intended to be a part of a social group. So one of the functions that I learned about it that helped me understand this was, for example, when you're a young child, let's say, in your parents' kitchen and there's a flame on the stove and you go to reach for the pot that's on the stove and you get near the fire and your parent shouts out, you know, like, stop what you're doing. Like, there's anger in that moment, right? Like, because you need to stop the behavior. Yeah, there's definitely a force. There's a force, exactly, exactly. And it might sound angry. I mean, I think it is a kind of form of mild rupture, milder, I don't know if, if I could qualify it that, but it is a form of rupture in that moment. And so it's enough to cause the body of the child to kind of stop what they're doing. It freezes the action. 
and they pause and they might then start to cry, right? And that's a function of shame that's actually meant to inhibit a particular behavior, right? But what I, you know, learned about healthy versus toxic shame was really important and interesting because in this theory, because we're wired for shame and it's a natural response, you know, there are things that can happen after that moment of rupture that actually matter in terms of whether it becomes a healthy response, because it can be a thing. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about the healthy version, it can be a thing that orients our behavior. It gives us a moment of pause to reflect, yeah. to evaluate. Am I hurting somebody? Or myself. Or myself. Yeah. yeah. Or is it friction between my behavior and my values? Right. I mean, I think it's so... I'm going to pause it for a moment because that's such an important understanding of yeah. like, that shame is a pause that is evoked from our physiology to help us evaluate. The moment, yeah. The moment, yeah, thank you. And of course it gets complicated because yeah. we don't live, and I, again, I say we in quotation marks, many of us in the modern world don't live in the kinds of kind of, you know, communal communities or villages that we once did, where this would have a very particular function. So it does look a little bit different in our very hyper-individualized world. But what was really interesting to me about their theory of toxic versus healthy shame was that there were kind of three things that characterized one versus the other. Okay. So in a moment of rupture, for example, you know, you have, I have to try to remember what those three things are actually, hold on. So the first one is that you are not identified. Yeah. Or it's a temporary thing that happened, right? Yeah, it, first, it's, yeah it's temporary. Yeah, it's temporary. Yeah. So the effects of it are not ongoing, yeah. right? The second is that you do not become the thing yeah. that you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not the behavior. The behavior is the behavior. The behavior is the behavior. Yeah. You are not the behavior. Yeah. Can we pause on that for a second? Shit. Can we pause on it? Yeah. Can we take a beat? <laughs> <laughs> Can we take two beats? Can we take two beats? <laughs> you are not your behavior. Now... Consider all of the structures in this world that we live in, in the modern world, that really depend on you being your behavior. Yeah. I mean, like, literally the criminal justice system, yeah. point blank. Yeah. You know, so many people become so identified with the thing that they did. Yeah. And there's no room, once we're identified with it, to become something else. So that's the second point. So in the, obviously, in the healthy version of shame, you are not the behavior you know, you, beautiful human, mysterious being of the cosmos, are this ever-unfolding being, and you can become something else. But we need to address the behavior, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in the toxic version of that, you're the behavior, you are now this thing. Yeah. And now I have no, there's no means for you to feel a sense of freedom to become something else. And then the third one is, in the healthy version, you have a pathway back into relationship. Mm, that's with yourself or another person. Yeah, I think yeah. facilitated often with the other people, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You find your way back to you because I love and accept you yeah. for who you are, right? Like, and not this thing that you did. And in that, you are free to then come back into alignment with your values and to be in community with yourself and be in community with others. Versus in the toxic experience where you are so aligned with the thing that you did and you've been cut off now. You've been disposed of. You've been canceled. You have been ousted. You are no longer valuable here. And I'm sorry, but, you know, when people like Brene Brown talk about shame, I think that's the shame she's talking about. Yeah. You know, she's talking about the toxic version of it, obviously, toxic, right? Yeah. 
I think she refers to the healthy shame maybe as guilt. I'm, yeah, I, I, I was wondering about that too. I think that's her distinction. Well, I'll call her and ask. Yeah, <laughs> you do that. <laughs> yeah. You let us know what she says. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that. Do you ring her up right now? Okay, maybe I will. Hey, Renee, it's Scotty, Dr. Scotty. What? Yeah, I'm right. Cool, cool. Yeah, thanks. She he said I'm right. That. Okay, good. Okay, good. I'm glad we got that settled. That's how it works. So to recap, like in healthy shame, that child that you were talking about reaching for the pot near the open flame and the parent yells at them. In healthy shame, that it's temporary, that, that freeze response is temporary because the parent comes in, the caregiver comes in, and they say something like, that scared me. Right. And I love you so much. I just didn't want you to get hurt. I just didn't want you to I get hurt. I love you and I don't want you to get hurt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a great video. I think Peter Levine actually showed this video in some group thing I was in with him. And it's this little boy and he is reaching for a potted plant. He's he's maybe a toddler, right? So he's very little, but there's this big potted plant on a table right in front of him. Have you seen this video? I think it's called Grandpa Says No and it's on... <laughs> It's on YouTube if you're curious. It's very short. It's really not all that fascinating. I can probably describe it just fine. But he tries to reach for this plant, almost knocking it over on his head. And right, that would hurt him. So you hear this sort of disembodied voice from somewhere in the room yell at the little boy, like, stop what you're doing. You know, stop that. The little boy does the shame thing. So he freezes, right? His hands kind of midair. And then he kind of like turns around to look towards his grandpa and like contracts, right? His body kind of folds in a little bit and his face gets all squishy and he's going to cry. And then right behind it, you hear his grandfather's voice say, oh, we should have moved that plant. It's okay. You know, in this really comforting tone just to reassure him that he's all right, you know, and he's just loved and he was just being looked out for. And that's a critical exchange, Because, and it seems so small. I can't tell you, Scott, how many times I'm watching TV or films, and maybe just because I'm in this world and because I'm so focused on it as a parent myself, you know, these very small, seemingly small moments in our lives, relational moments, that actually mean so much, especially when they're cumulative, right? And they just add to this kind of bucket of experience over time, that every time I do this, what I'm met with is not this kind of response. It's not even just the response that tells me, oh, there's a reason why I yelled at you just now, and I'm, I'm sorry, I love you, and I just want you to know that I want you to be safe. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, maybe it was as innocent of that as that, but of course there are other, you know, people who have grown up in contexts that were very shaming and didn't even, you know, have... There wouldn't have been a really good explanation for it other than the fact that maybe the parents were also carrying a lot into the role of parenting. Carrying a lot that of their was own trauma. Uh, their own trauma yeah. that was unresolved, unmetabolized, yeah. right? And that yeah. all it, that comes through, it filters through into mm. the relationship with the children. Yeah. And in those moments, that's where it bleeds into something that what you're calling toxic shame, where it's like there's never the bridge back into relationship. That kid, and the parent might even reinforce it later, like the child comes out and, and they go, why do you have to be so dumb? Yeah. You're just a dummy. You're just dumb. And the child internalizes yeah. it. And there's never a moment for the freeze to melt back into flow or movement in the physiology. Yeah. And so the freeze, I guess, in toxic shame stays there. Yeah. And the internalization or the script that comes with it of like, I'm a dummy. 
gets melted into it. So it's like the weight and the pain and the ache of the shame and the scripts, the mind scripts that come with it. Yeah, and then add to that, you know, the whole cultural dimension I mean, just in terms of what it means to be, you know, educated in like a public school system or whatever, it doesn't have to be public or private, but in a very kind of modern educational context. And you're also getting the force of that often through that experience. It's not just with caregivers. It's not. It's not. Absolutely. It's reinforced in many ways in many different contexts. And I think that's what's really important. And that's why when we talk about healing from these things, we're talking—we're not just talking about the personal and the familial. We're also talking about the cultural yeah. and the structural things that we need to actually address. Because even in the parenting example, like one of the things that I was meditating on a lot as a new parent, and at first I experienced a lot of shame yeah. because after my daughter was born, I had a breakdown of epic proportions it was one of the most difficult times in my life. And there was a lot contributing to it, right? There were hormonal things. There were so many things. And I, I know now in retrospect that a lot of it was related to my own past trauma coming forward. And I think one of the things I was most terrified of was not being able to provide my children. Like I didn't know what it meant at the time. I would kind of, I would find myself pacing sometimes and I would be saying things like, I just don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And what I knew enough to know that I didn't mean changing diapers and feeding the child, right? Clearly, that was okay for me. I knew that I was alluding to something far deeper that we're touching on right now. What does it actually mean to create the conditions for a child to thrive in this world? And I couldn't articulate that at the time, but my heart was kind of breaking because I wanted it so much and I was so afraid of what might come through me and be passed on to my children unconsciously. And so, you know, there was a great deal of time that I spent meditating on that. And I first had to kind of travel through some shame, you know, around all the ways that I felt like I was failing in the beginning of that experience because I was struggling so much. And it took a while. And that's a story maybe for another time. But what was really beautiful was when the shift happened for me, what I began to realize was that structurally, this shit sucked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. We are not set up. The world that I have grown up within, this modern world that I've grown up within, has not been set up to really, truly take care of and tend to the conditions for not just the child to thrive, but for the parents to thrive. I mean, the U.S. is a particular... Yeah asshole in this regard <laughs> yeah i mean really I mean, y'all is this 2025 i mean compared have to we like fixed this yet <laughs> compared to switzerland uh, or sweden i mean don't get me started in switzerland i know i've got I some know. things to say about switzerland they're not all nice i'm sorry <laughs> i love you switzerland in some ways no i'm okay 2025 i might have changed my mind yeah okay seriously though but some of the you know some of the ways even there have been whole industries and experts that have grown up around developing coping strategies for a structure that doesn't support us. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it's crap. Well, yeah. And then there's shame and fear mongling to, you know, direct people into a certain way of behaving too. And that has ramifications that yeah. are so significant. Yeah, for you sure. Know, there are religious institutions that have been built around this way of controlling chaos through fear and shame. Yes. Oh, controlling chaos. 
I mean, that's still some Back of the origins the of s- controlling chaos. Back, Back to, to the, the clown. Con- Ooh, which you know? the clown does not control chaos. The clown creates chaos. The clown creates and swims in chaos. Swims, and it's a borderland experience. You yeah. know, that's what I think is so interesting. It's not. Yeah. I don't know. I'm speaking about it, and I'm still kind of in the process of understanding it myself. But so I don't want to speak as an expert. I am not an expert at clowning. Maybe they shape chaos. Yeah, because there is something even in like the trickster yeah. stories where there is something that it brings us back to, right? Like whether it be that the trickster kind of disrupts something enough to kind of let something else happen that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, I do, yeah. And it makes me think as well of like maybe strategies or I don't like the word strategies to be honest, but maybe ways that we would engage the soma in healing, like we're, you know, even the the trauma responses that we've built or, or that we've hold them, developed over time, yeah. when they've been practiced enough, become hardened. And we know all this neuroplasticity. We know things that fire together, wire, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. But really what that's talking about is how the most efficient pathway for us is often the one that's most practiced, yeah. right? And even if what's practiced is rooted in something that is actually trauma, right? And so we have to disrupt that. We need the ability to disrupt what has become so entrenched and deeply ingrained in experience in order to make way for new constellations to emerge. We can't do it any other way. It's very cosmic. It is. And I think about that in like... (laughs) You just rushed over that cosmic part. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Pause for the cosmic (laughs) moment in 2025. It is cosmic. 2025. Okay, That's funny. No, but it reminds me of like what we were saying before of like intoxic shame, like the internalization of like, I am a bad person. Mm -hmm. And the repetition of that thought or the behavior that comes with that is the thing that's most grooved, the pathway that's most grooved. And so it's not kind to ourselves, but it's most familiar. And that's the difficult part in also healing and, and what you talked about in the, earlier about finding the awkwardness. In that moment of interrupting a pattern, like I'm a dumb person, like if that's the pattern, that's the thought process, we have to have an awkward moment of acceptance of being dumb or being something else besides that. Mm. Yeah, the question that comes to mind when you say that is, who are you without that belief? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I speak from personal, I mean, of course, I think maybe all of us have had at some point an experience of that. Yeah. Who am I without this? Yep. Hopefully. If not, I I wish that for you, dear listener, (laughs) because it's an, an important moment, I think. And someone very close to me, recently had that experience they said you know i always thought that you know i would be this one day or i always thought that i was like this or that i don't want to give too much away but i remember saying to them at the time i know this is terrifying and they said that like this is terrifying for me and i said i really know this is terrifying for you i want you to know that i'm here and that i love you and I'm really happy for you. Yeah. yeah. I'm really, really happy for you. And as long as you can know that you're loved through this, you're going to get through this. It will be okay. In fact, I think it'll be better than okay. Even though I know it's really scary not to know the answer to that question right now. You know, who am I without this? It's such a big question. And it requires 
the embracing of the unknown awkward, you know, like the clumsiness of bumping around the universe, bumping around the world, not knowing exactly who you are without that. Because are you valuable? Am I? No, I'm, I'm oh. just saying. No, that's the question, <laughs> though, know. right? No, you, yeah. of course, you are inherently valuable. We all are. That's what I'm trying to say. But th- I think the question that it evokes, it's like, especially within a capitalist economic structure, we have to plug in somewhere that's valuable to capitalism. That's the idea, at least, right? And what about when we can't do that anymore? Are we still valuable? If I'm not an architect, for some whatever reason, I can't be an architect anymore. My whole life I wanted to be an architect. I put everything into being an architect. And now I am not able to actually do that job anymore. Who am I? And who's going to love me if I have nothing to contribute? Or so I think. Right? I think it's so terrifying because it touches on that part, I think, for people that where they know that they're they're they are living in a cultural context that valorizes productivity, efficiency, you know, what are you giving to this yeah. machine here that we're all a part of? And if you're not giving anything, what's your value? Mm. But that's not a world I want to live in. No. No. I reject that world. I reject. I, I clown that world. <laughs> I, clown I clown it. it. I'm clowning that I'm world. I'm clowning that shame. I clown it. <laughs> that shameful world. I'm clowning that shameful world. You know, <laughs> I think about all the ways too that you know shame has this not so mysterious way of manifesting, like what we were saying before of like perfectionism, or you know, if I can be that perfect thing, then I'm not the thing I've internalized, yeah. or I, I can create distance for, or. I think about like how sometimes we shame ourselves. Like, oh, I didn't protect myself in that moment. You said something to me and I didn't stand up for myself. And so I I shame myself too, which is really just a replication of our early developmental patterns where someone else didn't show up for us. You know what I mean? But we replicate it and we do it onto ourselves. We reinforce like old shame and bring it on as new shame. Like we we are so to back to that thing we are so complex and weird <laughs> as humans, you know the patterns and the layers that we place on ourselves as opposed to like being human in the raw. Yeah, it just makes me think: where are those spaces where we get to kind of laugh at that? And and what is the role of like kind of ridicule, laughter, play? Mm-hmm. In like just helping us meet those moments. Yeah. Those are kind of shadow aspects. Those that aren't they're not shadow. kind of shadow aspects. They are shadow aspects. And I wonder, you know, to meet the shadow with a lot of gravitas is going to be a real challenge, right? Because for anyone who I, it reminds me of Pema Chodron. Do you know Pema Chodron's? Uh, yeah. Do you want me to call her too? Yeah, we should. <laughs> please. <laughs> if you have Pema's number, please just tell her I love her. But something I remember reading in one of her books, which I love, I think my Bible is When Things Fall Apart. It's the most dog-eared, tattered, scribbled-in book I own, and I love it so much. But I don't know. I think it's in that book, but it's in one of her books where she talks about just the importance of meeting ourselves in like moments of meditation with some levity and lightness and even some laughter and some humor. Because if we don't, we're going to become so serious. We're going to literally make a hole in this earth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. an indent in the earth. We're going to become so heavy and yeah. so burdened by the things we're carrying. So to interject 
into that experience some play and laughter and do it in the context of people who are doing it with you. Because guess what? They're human too. And you've got this very similar struggles. Even if they're, I'm not talking about like how we, you know, how we're impacted by the world or structures, but we all have physiologies that are impacted by shame and, you know, experiences that are overwhelming to us. And yeah, we need such spaces. We need such spaces to be able to meet those shadow aspects yeah. with some laughter. Yeah. Be like, oh, you're here again. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you're really dropping one of the medicines of shame, of how to heal. Like, because to me, when you say like the laughter, that reminds me of this, well, first of all, breath and movement and the curiosity and play, all these things that are not present in the frozen immobility of long-term shame or toxic shame. Yeah. And... I can just imagine you in clowning school, like, you know, being seen in this moment that a buffooning of, of like tripping over yourself that maybe in the past that might have been like a self-shamed or like a shame from the outside where you get to be like actually laugh at it. Yeah. And there's a resilience that grows in being able to be laugh at something as opposed to being able to come out of the freeze. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, critical component of that is knowing that that's a value in that space. That's mm. a value. You know, I still don't know what that looks like outside of that space. Outside 100%. the clowning space? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, it's a curiosity for me. I don't really have a, an answer for it. But, you know, if I were to walk into a conference where there's a bunch of very you know, very expert people, very serious. <laughs> Love your faith that comes with the word expert. <laughs> it reminds me of this time. I was in Chicago many years ago. I went to a party with yeah. a friend of mine. Please don't take it personally, folks in 2025 who love wine and love going to wine events that where you talk about wine. I love that for you. And I think it's very interesting. I think how wine is made and years and the conditions of the soil, blah, 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 is all very interesting. But when it comes with this kind of air of import, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. For those who can see me, it's this air of import <laughs> where, you know, we should all, there, literally, this is not a joke. What happened was the hostess of this party, it was outside in their backyard. She retreated into her apartment for a moment and then someone made an announcement. <laughs> She's coming. And in her arms, like a baby, was this bottle of wine. I think it was maybe even wrapped in something, like a blanket or something. And it was being ushered down. I might be exaggerating slightly, by the way, but this is in my memory. This is what it looked like. It was a presentation yeah. of a bottle of wine that happened to have come out of a very great year yeah. for wine. Yeah. I don't know anything about these things, except I don't even drink wine, actually. Yeah. yeah anyway, <laughs> I, I used to, but I don't anymore. But there was this, like, hush silence you know and people were like it's here did she bring it out she brought the wine and I was like am I supposed to be like caring about this <laughs> and again I'm making fun yeah but what I'm not making fun of is actually knowledge about wine I think it's very interesting actually like anything that can be very interesting when you get into the nuts and bolts of it it was this whole kind of veil that descended on this group of people and it felt like I was supposed to be taking this a lot more seriously. And I, all I wanted to do was laugh at it. Yeah. You know, and I think for me, that's kind of the clown, yeah. you know, like it's laughing at the pomp and circumstance of the moment. It's like, we're all taking ourselves so very seriously right now. Can somebody just like make a joke real quick here? <laughs> like this is so stuffy. Yeah. 
So, I, you know, I try to imagine what does it mean? And there are good examples. I mean, I think comedians kind of are clowns writ large. And there are, you know, there's clowning that happens in, you know, classrooms around the country all the time. And I'm always so curious, like, I don't know where kind of the embodiment of the clown in a moment. Maybe it was it's enough for me just to have it within myself, not to have to take it so seriously and therefore not to have to take myself so seriously and then I'm a little more free mm-hmm. in the moment. I'm a little bit more at ease. I'm a little bit more available for connection because the stakes aren't so high, you know? And that's such a beautiful thing already. You come back into relationship. You come back into relationship, exactly. And you have the potential to. And then it makes me wonder, well, maybe that's it. And maybe just by example, the clown through me by example kind of extends the invitation for others to join me. And let's have a laugh. Like (laughs) we can both love that wine bottle and the wine within it because it was happened to come out of a good year for wine. And we can laugh about it too. I love that. And you're describing such one of the significant antidotes of shame is like to come back into relationship. We don't have to do it with the person who quote unquote shame does, but to notice and bring in or to connect back with other humans inherently or often takes us out of that freeze yeah, or little bits at a time at least. I appreciate you saying that because I think there's often this idea that we have to do the healing on our own first. And and of course, I think for most people who know, who have been experienced a good therapist or a good practitioner, you know that it's the relational dynamic is the probably the primary healer in that scenario. The person who that we feel safe enough with to unfurl a little bit, who doesn't recoil at the things that we say, who meets us with compassion and empathy, like that is probably 90 whatever percent of the process I've experienced it myself many times, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, relationship, what are we doing if we're not doing that? Yeah. Know what I mean, brother? <laughs> I think I catch your drift. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I just have to say, I love you. And, you know, like that description right there, that individual who holds the space in the way that like, without forcing anyone, like really lays the bricks for that bridge for when that person is ready to be seen and heard again, to melt that frozenness of that toxic shame. Like, you have that super skill as a human. Like, I have always experienced that with you. And I love that now that you have even more repertoire of how to do that, which is, like, clowning around, (laughs) like, finding that capacity to, like, bring levity, humor, play. But also, the clowning is also serious. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. We're looking at social change, right? And that is serious. And you're bringing all of that into this, the world as like the medicine, I think, of shame. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Mm. And as I say to my dog, Wabu. Wabu. What's that mean? Wabu, too. It's love, you know, but you have to say it in the language of a wubby. A wub you. Yeah, so (laughs) Ruby is a golden doodle that we rescued. And I don't know if you know golden doodles, but they're not quite dogs. They're like somewhere in between. So I call her a wubby. Yeah. So she's... I wub her. I know that was very silly now. (laughs) 2025 listeners, that was very silly. We wub you. Wub (laughs) Wub you. Corinne, thank you so much for being on the Gently Used Human. We wub you. Oh, thank you for having me on, Scott. It was so good to be with you today. 
Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.